Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepps, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Kristen Seaman, Associate Professor in the Department of the History of Art and Architecture and an affiliated faculty member in the Department of Classics at the University of Oregon. Seaman's research centers on Greek art and architecture and its interaction with Rome and the Middle East. She was a regular member at the American School of Classical Studies at Athens, Greece, and she carried out additional archaeological training at the American Academy in Rome, Italy. She has done archaeological fieldwork in Greece, Israel, Italy, and the United States, and she has studied the practice of stone carving. Seaman is the author of Rhetoric and Innovation in Hellenistic Art from 2020 and the co-editor with Peter Schultz of Artists and Artistic Production in Ancient Greece from 2017. Seaman's current book project explores labor, ethnicity, and multiculturalism in the Greek sculpture industry. Her work on that project has been supported by a 2020-2021 Oregon Humanities Research Fellowship. Seaman has received funding from the Fulbright Foundation, the Loeb Classical Library Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the State Scholarships Foundation of Greece, and the Von Bothmer Publication Fund of the Archaeological Institute of America. Seaman is a 2021-2022 Oregon Humanities Center Coleman Gateau Professor. The Teaching Fellowship has funded her development of a new undergraduate class, Ancient Jewish Art and Architecture, which she will teach in spring 2022. Thanks, Chris, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. First, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I am an art historian and archaeologist who deals with the ancient Mediterranean world. I'm most interested in studying uh, the impact of Greek art, architecture, and archaeology on the ancient Mediterranean world, as well as its interactions with Rome and the ancient Middle East. And I study, for the most part, the world after Alexander the Great in the fourth century and into the Hellenistic period, which follows his death and the Roman world. So what led to your interest in classical art and architecture of the Mediterranean region? Why is that where you wound up? Well, when I was a child, I was really interested in history. Um, I liked all periods. I, when I went to college, I wasn't sure what I was going to major in specifically. I thought it would be something historical or uh, political science or something along those lines. And I took, a, I took part in a program my freshman year of college uh, called Directed Studies. Uh, it was a program in the humanities. Uh, this was at Yale University. And it dealt with uh, humanistic topics in history and politics, literature and philosophy for the whole year. And I really fell in love with the ancient portions of it. Uh, there was one lecture by a professor uh, by the name of C. John Harrington, who did a wonderful lecture on uh, the Oresteia. He was a literature professor, and that this really excited me about the ancient world. Um, and then I was trying to figure out how I would uh, get a major out of my historical interest. And I increasingly turned to thinking about uh, the use of material culture as historical evidence. I might not have framed it that way as a freshman or a sophomore, but now that's how I think of art, architecture, archaeological remains, and other material culture more broadly, just, uh, just as useful as 
uh, textual evidence for reconstructing the ancient world. And so I combined all of those interests into majoring in archeological studies and classical civilization. So I started taking Latin and Greek. I hadn't done that prior to college. And I always encourage my students, you know, that it's never too late to start Latin and Greek. There's, I think, a misconception, certainly when I was a student, that it was only for folks who had studied it prior to college. And of course, that excludes a lot of folks from the field. And so now I think the field is trying to be more inclusive and encouraging to of people or to people to uh, join the field when they do get to college or even graduate school. Uh, so that was sort of how that coalesced as an undergraduate. Um, and then I was able to uh, excavate uh, on campus in New Haven, which was a lot of fun. And then I also went to Athens for the first time when I was an undergraduate to dig at the Agora excavations. So I had a lot of uh, experiences in college that reinforced my interest and my desire to go to graduate school. So now you are a professor uh, of uh, art and art history and classics. Um, given your interest in material culture and archaeology of the classical world, you have continued, obviously, to do fieldwork. Tell us about a, a fieldwork trip that you've done since you've been a professor. Well, I worked on many places over the years as a student. I tried to get experience excavating uh, more at the Agora in Israel at a site called Taldor, uh, in Italy at um, Bomarzo, which was part of a program that the American Academy in Rome did. I did their summer program in archaeology as a grad student. I had great experiences in all of those things. Um, but it was never my intention to be an excavation director or to lead an excavation. I really was most excited when I was an undergraduate seeing all the folks working in Athens uh, in the Stoa of Attalus, which is the museum and the storage facility for the excavations. And I would see folks such as Evelyn Harrison, who was um, a very prominent scholar in the 20th century who worked on Greek sculpture. She would work down there in the basement in the storerooms. And that's what really excited me. So since becoming a professor, I've been able to work on the sculpture at the Agora. And I have an open project now uh, looking at the sculpture associated with a sculptural workshop that dates to the Roman period. A lot of unfinished sculpture, so I get to look at a lot of tool marks and uh, manufacturing techniques, which is something that really excites me. I get very interested in that. And I've also taken stone carving classes to sort of help me with that, that study. Uh, so that's where my interests primarily are now in field work as opposed to other library-based, museum-based work. So um, tell us first about your first book, your first monograph, Rhetoric and Innovation in Hellenistic Art. Can you give us a kind of a snapshot of the uh, project of that book? Yeah, it is about the impact of rhetorical techniques um, and treatises, theories, on the art of the Hellenistic period, which is my favorite period of Greek art, which is the period that follows the death of Alexander the Great and sees the rise of the kingdoms of his successors throughout the Mediterranean and the ancient Middle East. What I focused on were some artworks that I loved since I was an undergraduate. 
the Telephos frieze from the great altar at Pergamon in what's now Turkey, the Archelaus relief, which is originally based on an artwork in Alexandria, Egypt, was copied and sent to Italy to have uh, a display perhaps in a Roman villa and then was found in a tertiary context and is now in the British Museum. And the uh, now lost mosaic of Sosis's unswept room, which is a mosaic that was originally laid on a floor in a palace at Pergamon in Turkey, in what's now Turkey, and shows sort of the after effects of a messy dining uh, 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 party that took place in a Greek symposium. So there's all refuse on the floor and it looks like it just hasn't been swept up. So it's, it's sort of a joke as well as a dazzling mosaic in terms of technique, uh, at least judging by other mosaics that are extant from Pergamon and elsewhere in the Hellenistic world. And we know that mosaic from copies that have survived from the ancient world. So I focused on those mosaics. Uh, those were mosaics that I originally saw, or excuse me, artworks that I originally saw in classes that I took as an undergraduate with J.J. Uh, Pollitt, who uh, really sparked my interest in the Hellenistic period and in Hellenistic art. Um, that's actually why I went to Berkeley as a grad student, because I was so excited by the Hellenistic world. Uh, Berkeley was really a center for Hellenistic studies when I was a graduate student. And I got to study with Andrew Stewart and Eric Gruen, who are uh, both leaders in the field of Hellenistic studies. So that's, you know, it's been very exciting to see this book project that started as my dissertation in graduate school come to fruition. Um, and it's been interesting to see also how, uh, I can use that as a jumping off point too for other, other um, projects that I'm now doing that relate to the association of art and literature in the Hellenistic period and other periods. So I mentioned at the top of the interview that you are the 2122 Oregon Humanities Center Coleman Gateau Professor, and that the fellowship that you've won uh, is a teaching fellowship that funds the development of a new undergraduate class, which you've decided to title Ancient Jewish Art and Architecture. What your interest in developing that class? Well, my interest in it is because for many years I've taught surveys of Greek art and Roman art and specialized seminars on cultural interaction in the ancient Mediterranean world. And one of the aspects of those courses that students respond really well to and want to know more about is ancient Jewish art, particularly ancient Jewish art within the Greco-Roman world, which is also an interest of mine um, that started when I was in graduate school. It was part of my PhD exams uh, in terms of uh, Jews in the Roman world. That was part of my Roman history uh, PhD exam uh, process. Uh, so that's something that I've uh, carried with me as a professor. And one of the things that I've noticed either taking courses or reading textbooks about ancient Mediterranean art and Greek and Roman art is that it's often neglected. It's not really, uh, has, has a doesn't really have a prominent place in these surveys. Um, that doesn't mean it didn't exist and wasn't a fascinating subject of study. Um, in its own day, we have authors who write about um, ancient Jewish art and aesthetics. Um, but also in the modern world, uh, museums and 
other uh, sites and excavations. There's so much going on. So I thought it would be really interesting to focus on it as its own class, especially given the student interest that at sites like Dura Europis, which has a lot of cultural interaction, um, there's a synagogue that uh, was excavated there that has wonderful uh, frescoes of uh, scenes from the Bible, for example, that students are very excited to see and are surprised by because they don't hear about these things um, perhaps in you know, their, their, their other uh, interests in the ancient world. So as I understand it, the course counters a widespread misconception about early Jewish beliefs about art, what you call the myth of Jewish artlessness. Tell us about that misconception and how the course corrects it. Well, a prominent scholar in the field of ancient Jewish art, archaeology and architecture is Stephen Fine. He's coined this term, the rhetoric of Jewish artlessness. He talks about it at length in his, in his book on uh, Jewish art in the Greco-Roman world. He discusses how ancient Jewish art is largely absent from surveys and survey books. And a lot of times people base this on a misconception that the second commandment, which um, relates to the prohibition of images in a religious context in terms of figural images relating to um, God, then um, precludes the use of art and architecture and decorative elements and other aspects of the ancient world. And one thing that is interesting to see that different communities have different relationships with art and have different patronages with art and architecture. And when you start to look at the diversity of this in the ancient world, it's quite fascinating to see how different communities um, did their art and architecture. And when you start to really look at this, um, you can separate maybe the aspects of Jewish aesthetics that relate to the second commandment or a response to it, and then other aspects that really are not affected by it. And that's something that scholars have talked about a lot, as you can imagine. And it's something that uh, students don't really, or haven't really encountered much, that scholarly discussion of that, and that we actually do see um, you know, representational imagery a lot in Jewish context in the ancient Mediterranean. So tell us about some of those representations. What, what do the artworks depict? Well, they depict lots of different things. I think the, uh, the most prominent example is the synagogue at Dura Europis, uh, because it has this amazing um, cycle of frescoes that depict scenes from the Hebrew Bible. And that's always surprising to students because they don't know this. It's surprising to a lot of folks generally um, for various reasons. Um, what you also find are lots of representations of symbols, for example, the menorah. And you get that in, uh, for example, situations and contexts like the uh, catacombs in Rome, you get that in um, glass that's been found from context in Rome and elsewhere. You get that in synagogues, you have representations of menorot. Um, you also get them uh, in graffiti 
in uh, domestic context in Jerusalem, which is really fascinating. I always like the study of graffiti uh, whenever I'm looking at the ancient world because you get to see what more everyday people were doing when they were encountering and making art. It, you didn't need a lot of money to, to, to do a graffito. You could do it uh, individually. So I really enjoy seeing those as well. So that would be some of the uh, religious imagery. And then we get a lot of architectural um, examples as well. The Herodian building program, for example, uh, the uh, tombs that we see it from the second temple period in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a lot of elements that are um, in concert with the art and architecture that's going on elsewhere in the ancient Mediterranean world. So you get all you know, the range of art that you see in other contexts in the ancient Mediterranean, you see in Jewish communities as well. So tell us a little bit about the way that uh, th these Jewish art makers um, integrated uh, Greco-Roman imagery and iconography into some of their art. Yeah, well, the, the fascinating thing that I find about the ancient world is that it was multicultural. So you get communities that are multicultural and you see lots of interactions artistically and otherwise in these communities. So in some respects, the art looks very similar to, the, to what it looks like elsewhere at the same time. So it's not, I don't conceive of it as a question of integrating the art so much as just participating in the artistic discourse that's going on in the Hellenistic and Roman periods, or if you want to say Second Temple in, in later Roman world, um, depending on how you're, you know, which community you're talking about, you might be using a different categorization for the same time period. Uh, but when you, when you look at this art, you see the same range of interactions you get elsewhere. And so that's what I find, you know, really fascinating how these, these same elements are used and adapted in different contexts, in Jewish contexts and, you know, other contexts as well. Are there characteristics which are distinctive that would allow you as a as an archaeologist and as a scholar to see a piece and say, I know that's that's a that's a Jewish artwork versus, you know, a Greek artwork or a Roman artwork? Well, there are some symbols that are obviously used, like the menorah or etrog or different things that we see in various contexts that relate to Jewish practice and ritual that are even recognizable today. When One of the fun things to see in class is that these are recognizable in the modern world as well, oftentimes. So it's, you know, the, the symbols are readily um, readily uh, understood by, by a contemporary audience seeing these things. Um, those are very obvious symbols. Um, you get technical um, elements that specialists would be able to identify, you know, about the artistic techniques of whatever medium we're talking about. And then um, one of the fascinating things to me is that a lot of uh, the same artisans in various places, for example, at Dura Europus, there's also a Christian community house. And the stylistic um, similarities between the frescoes there and the frescoes in the synagogue are, are very marked. So one of the things that we see there, we also see it later on in the uh, late antique period um, with Byzantine and Islamic architecture as well. You 
see the same kinds of elements, oftentimes the same artistic and architectural language and the same uh, artists and architects working on various projects. Um, you know, oftentimes in the ancient Mediterranean world and then going into late antiquity, you have itinerant um, artists who would go to where the projects would take them. So, you know, I know that um, Greco-Roman rulers often used art and architecture to, um, to assert their power, to assert their vision. Did Jewish rulers do that same sort of thing? Yes, Herod, I think, is the best example of that. He positions himself as a late Hellenistic king, uh, which is fascinating to see what he's doing in, in the late Hellenistic world. Um, you have all of the kings at Pergamon, at, uh, at Alexandria, most prominently. Um, by the time Herod comes along, Pergamon is no longer um, uh, its own kingdom. It's, it's bequeathed to Rome by that point. Um, but you get the Ptolemies in Alexandria, for example, asserting their presence. And also at that point, you have the coming of the Roman world. So you get um, the Emperor Augustus, who also is asserting his, his power and um, his influence, and also staking his claim to be a ruler in this late Hellenistic early Roman Empire world, um, which, which is also really fascinating to me that you get these two um, new kings on the scene or emperor in the case of Augustus, who is using the same sorts of artistic patronage that the Hellenistic kings had used for the past couple of centuries. So seeing that within that context, I, I always find very fascinating to see it in the whole of the Mediterranean world. So the Comigato Fellowship comes with a course enrichment funds. You're using some of those funds to um, uh, acquire books for the University of Oregon Library. Tell us about those books and why they're important. Yes, well, we have a really great collection to, to start off with, with ancient Mediterranean um, materials, art, archaeology, architecture. And we actually have a good starter um, collection or more than a starter collection, a, a top-notch research collection of uh, ancient Jewish art and architecture as well. So I really was just getting things to sort of top off the collection and things that might have come out over the years that we missed. I uh, The most, the, the, the biggest example was the second edition of Stephen Fine's book about uh, Jewish art in the Greco-Roman world. We had the first edition, we didn't have the second edition, which is something that the students read and um, I point them to all the time and I assign in my classes. So that was a good example of that. And then some archeological uh, materials about um, collections of Jewish art and architecture in Israel and the diaspora. And then the Encyclopedia of um, Biblical Archaeology, uh, we now have as well. So you've also used some of that funding to bring some speakers to speak with your class. You want to tell us about them? Yes, this is very exciting. I'm, I'm very excited about this list we have. We have, a, we have an all-star list of folks. And I have a list right here because I do not want to forget anyone. I can give the titles of their lectures as well. On uh, April 6th, we have Eric Gruen, who is going to speak about displaced in the diaspora, Jewish communities in the Greco-Roman world. Um, Eric Gruen is Professor Emeritus at the University of California at Berkeley, and one of the most beloved figures in the field and among graduates of the University of California at Berkeley. He was one of my professors as well. 
Um, so we all um, are always excited to see him uh, when he when he presents material. Now in the Zoom days, he, he's, he's still very active on Zoom giving lectures. Uh, on Monday, April 11th, we have Jody Magnus, who is going to speak about more than just mosaics, the ancient synagogue at Hukok in Israel's Galilee. She is professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and she also is the director of excavations at Hukok. So she will be speaking about her own excavations, which is also very, very exciting. And mosaics uh, in the title refers to some of the wonderful mosaics that we know about in ancient uh, Jewish art history from other synagogues. People get very excited about mosaics. I had talked about the frescoes before. There are also wonderful mosaics in these late antique synagogues in what's uh, now um, Israel um, and was then Israel as well, of course. Um, and that is something that, um, you know, she's referring to it because people know about the mosaic so much. Uh, Stephen Fine, whom I just mentioned as being you know, a very well-known scholar who deals with Jewish art within the Greco-Roman world um, and had the, the book that we bought for uh, the library. He will speak about um, Jews, Samaritans and the art of the ancient synagogue. He's professor at Yeshiva University and the director of the Yeshiva University Center for Israel Studies. Then we have Yas Elsner, who is professor at Oxford University. And he will speak about Dura Europus and its conceptual context between Eurasian fantasy and mandate archeology. span He is speaking on May 9th and uh, Professor Fine is speaking on May 2nd. On May 11th, we have Zayev Weiss, who is professor of archeology span at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And he will speak about the synagogue in the shadow of the temple and after its destruction. Uh, Yas Elsner is a very prominent art historian who deals with a whole range of things in the Greco-Roman world, in addition to Jewish art. And Zayev Weiss is a very prominent archeologist who has, is also a director of excavations at the Sepphoris excavations um, in Israel. And then on Wednesday, May 18th, we have Sean Burris, who is talking about making Jewish place and making Jewish space, Jewish art at Rome, Betsiarum, and Dura Europus. He is the interim curator at the Bowdoin College Museum of Art. And he um, recently wrote a really um, interesting dissertation on uh, Jewish sarcophagi in the Roman world. So he has a lot of interest in um, more, more uh, I don't wanna say in a sarcophagus is portable, but certainly his interests are about art that does move as opposed to just um, buildings and uh, sort of cities and urbanization that some of our other scholars are going to be speaking about. Amazing, amazing list. It's going to be an incredible it, it class is, for your students. Is. Wow. <laughs> really and the amazing. public is invited to attend. These will be on Zoom and that information will be on your website shortly. So um, these are open to the public and will be on Zoom. Great. So Kristen, we're just about at the end of our time. So this will be my last question. Um, tell us a bit about your current book project uh, on the Greek sculpture industry that was uh, partially supported by an OHC faculty research fellowship. Well, thanks so much for all of this support. I really have to thank the OHC for supporting not only this class, but that project. I appreciated that term to, to get the book project started. I am looking at the non-elite 
participants in the Greek sculpture industry. Usually we focus on the big names who are doing Greek sculpture like Phidias or Praxiteles, Polyclitus, all of these very famous people who were very well off and were the elite members of Greek society. And in this project, I am looking at all of the um, non-elite and everyday participants in the sculpture industry from the folks who did the quarrying of the marble and the mining of the metals to the folks who were working in the workshops at the very end of the processes. Um, and it's those folks have been really ignored oftentimes in our historical scholarship because it's so um, interesting to talk about, you know, Phidias to be sure. And we have so many literary sources about these folks. And we have a lot of extant examples and Roman copies of the Greek artworks of these famous masters, as we call them. But I want to look at everyone else who was uh, dealing uh, with this material. And there are a lot of evidence from their own dedications and their own grave stelae that really give us a sense of their own voices. Um, and that's really important, I think, to, to study the, the breadth of experience and lived experience in the ancient Mediterranean. Another fascinating, fascinating project that you're engaged with. Thanks, Chris, so much for taking the time with, to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you to the OHC for all of this great support. It's, it's really helpful and I appreciate it. And the students appreciate it too. They're very excited about the upcoming course. Great. I've been speaking with Kristen Seaman, Associate Professor in the Department of the History of Art and Architecture and an affiliated faculty member in the Department of Classics at the University of Oregon. As a 2021-2022 Oregon Humanities Center Coleman Gateau professor, Seaman developed a new undergraduate class, Ancient Jewish Art and Architecture, which she will teach in spring 2022. Thanks so much for watching.